Amen. Please grab a seat and grab your Bibles, if you would. Go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We're going to be working through Acts 3 and 4 this morning together. I told them this morning during first service, and I wasn't lying, um, <clears throat> this was going to be kind of different in that probably the first 25 minutes, 30 minutes of our time together is going to be introduction, and the last five or ten minutes will be message. So you could decide which, which side you, you prefer, introduction material or the message. Um, I, I think it's important that we understand the context of chapters three and four, so we're going to work through chapters three and four to get to the place where we can really kind of zone in on what it is that God's trying to tell us at the end of Acts chapter 4 together. Um, I don't know if any of you remember this or not, but there was a commercial when I was a wee little lad for this product called Calgon. Anybody remember Calgon? I don't know anything about the product other than the commercial was always, Calgon, take me away! Right? The whole concept was life is difficult, life is hard, things are going crazy, uh, the work has erupted, traffic stinks, my kids won't listen to me, Calgon, take me away! Um, I think for most of us, when things are difficult, our heart's cry is for a change in circumstances. So I want that just to kind of register and, and rattle around in your head for the next half an hour until we get to where that's actually the point. But I, I want us to consider when our circumstances are difficult, what is it that we should desire most? A bubble bath <laughs> or something different? So in Acts chapter 3, what we find is this wonderful story, and I don't want to re-preach chapters 1 and 2, but you remember the disciples have kind of really been going through it with this amazing moment on the mountaintop where they're looking, and Jesus has just ascended, and, and, and Jesus had given them a task, and then the angels are like, why are you still standing here, boys? Didn't he tell you to do something? And they get off the mountain finally, and when they get off the mountain, excuse me, they go to the upper room and they pray and they spend time in the Word and they're wrestling with it and Peter steps up and he leads them with, so what do we do next? Then you get to Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes and they begin speaking languages they never studied. Men are hearing the message of the gospel in their native tongue. The, and Peter is preaching one of the most non-seeker-sensitive messages in the history of preaching, which is going to become a, a, a pattern for Peter and we're going to see that again here in chapters 3 and 4. And then at the conclusion of that, we get to see the church, the, the family of God, the children of God, behaving like the family of God is expected to behave. And it gives us this picture of what that is. And, and it really boils down to this. You see the, the church gathers together and they, they, they dedicate themselves and devote themselves and are passionate about the apostles' teaching. And so they're hearing the teaching of God's Word with the intent of responding to it when they're uh, in their lives, things are pointed out that need to change, so they're very teachable. But then they're also connected. They're, they're connected to one another in the family. You're going to see that come up here in our story this morning. But they're also connected to God in prayer. That you'll also see come up this morning. On top of that, the, the, the family of God is now a generous people, and it makes very little sense, if any at all, other than this. It's an outpouring based on the mercy they've received, and they know, man, I, I, I have everything to give because everything's been given to me. And so that's the kind of the, the context of where this is at, and, and you start in verse 1 of chapter 3, and Peter and John, 
They go up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So I'll stop real quick. When it says they're going up to the temple, that is literal. The temple was situated in a place, the highest place in the city. So whenever you went to the temple, you always went up. It talks about going during the hour of prayer. This is 3 p.m. It's a time when, when uh, each day they would bring their sacrifices and come into the temple for a time of prayer. Chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, A man lame from birth was being carried. They laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, okay? So what's happening here? You've got Peter and John heading to the temple during the hour of prayer, and here is this lame man from birth being carried, probably by his family members, to the temple. And this is a daily event, a daily occurrence in the life of this man, and the reason is, is if history is any indicator of what's happening here, it's, it's because his family was viewing this man as, listen, dude, you can't work because you've been lame from birth, you, you can't do a trade, you're lame from birth, so instead, we're going to find a way for you to add some income to our family situation, and so every day, you're going to go to the temple and you're going to beg. And that was the, the lame man's way of bringing value and bringing some measure of finance into the family to, to even take care of himself. And so family members would bring him, and they, they brought him to the temple, and it says they put him before the gate that is called the beautiful gate. We have no idea which gate at the temple was the beautiful gate. Uh, the ancient historian Josephus, who, who has written so much about this time period, was writing about the temple, and he said, when, when you try to comprehend what it is, the beautiful gate, you've got to remember that there were nine gates at the temple that were overlaid with gold and silver already. And there was a tenth one that, was, that far surpassed those other gold and silver gates because this tenth one was made out of, of a Corinthian bronze, and so it, it was by far just awe-inspiring. Now, was it the Corinthian bronze gate? Was it one of the other? We don't know which one it is, okay? Suffice it to say this, it's a fantastic door that the people use to get into the temple. In addition to that, it's a fantastic business model that this fella has. Because if you, if you know anything about the rabbis at the time, they taught there were three basic tenets or three basic pillars of Judaism, and it was this. It was studying the Torah being committed to worship, and being uh, a person who showed kindness or charity, in particular, who was willing to give to those who were in need. So this fella figured it out. <clears throat> Here you've got hundreds and hundreds of people going to the temple during the time of sacrifice and prayer, and they're going to go through this one door to get in, and he's going to situate himself right outside that door, and he's going to look at them and say, well, hello there. Uh, you see you're being a good Jew today, and you're studying the Torah here, and you're coming to worship here. Did you also know you should be giving to the needy? I mean, he, this man is brilliant. And so he's playing on their piety, if you would. Peter and John come into his presence, and he sees them, and he does what he does with everybody. He asks them to give him alms, give him a donation throw a couple of quarters at him. Peter, in verse 4, directs his gaze at him, as John did, and said, look at us. This man fixed his attention on Peter and John, expecting to receive something from them. So, so, so understand this, Peter, Peter looks at this man who is begging and says, okay, okay, listen, listen, look at me right there. <laughs> 
Now, at this time, it was, it was common for people to make a big deal when they gave a big donation. So this poor fellow's got to be like, yes, I hit the jackpot. Uh, and he fixes his gaze at Peter and John like, all right, I'm ready to see what kind of gold and silver you're going to pull out of your pockets. And Peter says this, verse 6, I have no silver. I have no gold. But what I do have, I give to you. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse 7 says, he took him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them. He was walking and leaping and praising God, and and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the, the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So, so Peter, after getting the fellow's attention fixed on him, kind of reaches down like you knock somebody over on the floor or whatever in a, a competition or a football game, and you're reaching down to pick them up. He, he kind of reaches down, he extends his hand, he grabs his hand, and he, and he picks him up. And as he is being picked up, it says that his ankles and his feet were made strong. This fellow was lame from birth. And, and I love the way Luke describes it, because it doesn't disappoint. It's not this nonchalant, oh, yep, and all of a sudden he could stand and then move on. Luke spends some time on it, particularly in verse 8. Look at all of the descriptions terms that Luke throws in there to point out the fact that this fella who was lame from birth now can walk. Verse 8 of chapter 3, it says this, and leaping, he stood, he began to walk, and he entered the temple walking, leaping, praising God. This is no, you know, obviously he could stand. How many of you know the song the kitty song that goes with this. Raise your hand. I'm not going to make you sing it, I promise. I think people in the first service were threatened. If you know it, raise your hand. Oh, man, there's less in here than no. It looks like it's a Taylor trio. Come on, guys. There's good. So it's this kitty song. It's like, oh, he's walking and leaping and praising. And, and sometimes for me, knowing that song, none of you, obviously, because you don't know the song, I read this and I'm like, okay, it, it just kind of gets juvenile. Like, you know, he's walking and leaping, whatever. This guy cannot contain himself. He he is so overwhelmed with what has just occurred in his life. If you've seen the video of the the young woman who is in her mid-20s, late-20s, who has never heard before, they fit her with cochlear implants. And the video is when they turn them on for the first time. Here is this woman who has never heard the voice of her husband. They turn the the implants on, so now she's able to hear, and he begins to speak. How does she respond? It's not like we would be like, oh, you have a terrible voice. Now, there, there is a life that is changed in that moment. There is an emotion for this woman who has never heard before to suddenly hear. Here is this fella who has never stood before. Suddenly, there is strength in his ankles and he is standing. He's walking. He's running. He's leaping. I mean, okay, so I don't know how you respond to things. You've known me well enough now to know that I respond to things a little differently than the average person. So, so if this happens to me, I'm going to be like, yo, look, I got feet, and they work. 
I mean, wouldn't you be doing stuff? I mean, it says he's leaping and jumping around. Does he need to leap? Absolutely not. But you know why he does? Because he can. He can. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the fact that this man who had never walked before now stands and leaps and runs and praises God because of it. And it's interesting that the crowd who sees this man leaping and running around, I mean, he's probably standing out a little bit. I mean, you got these very pious and sophisticated people going to the temple to pray, and they're walking very, and then here comes this dude, like, pew, pew, pew. It's like, okay, he's standing out. Wait, 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 wait. Wasn't that the guy at the gate? Wasn't that the, oh, hang on a minute. We see him every day. He can't walk. How's he running? And so it says that they are filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, because this dude ain't going anywhere. This has changed his life. So he's holding on to Peter and John. All of the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Just a a visual for you. A portico really is just kind of a a line of, of ornate columns with kind of a roof on it. It's almost like a porch. And so the, the ancient historians said that Solomon's portico in particular, that one that is called Solomon's portico, was the one at which the, the early believers met and worshipped and studied together and prayed together. And so here they go running to Solomon's portico. They're, they're running there, and when Peter, verse 12, sees it, he addressed the people. So imagine this. Peter and John are there. The guy who was just healed is clinging to them after he's been running around the joint, and now here come all the people running to Peter and John to find out what is going on. And I love it. Peter has become this new guy where now if people are running at him, he's not running away. He's going to take advantage of it, and they're going to be sorry that they ran towards Peter because Peter says, This, verse 12. Men of Israel, why are you wondering at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own power or piety we've made this fellow walk? See, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he glorified his servant Jesus. Oh, who who you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when, when Pilate had decided to release him. No, you you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life. (laughs) But God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And this name, by faith in this name, it has made him strong whom you see and you know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter's like, listen, guys, why are you looking at us like we did anything? No, this, this is Jesus. Does that name ring a bell to you? You know, Jesus, the one that you denied. Jesus, the, the one who you, who, who, who when presented next to Barabbas, the known murderer and insurrectionist, and Pilate said, would you rather me give you Jesus or, or Barabbas? You were like, Barabbas. You remember Jesus, the one who you cried out, crucify him? You remember Jesus, the one that you laid on the cross and put to death and we buried in that tomb? You remember him? He's alive. That Jesus who you killed is alive. You know why? Because he's the author of life. I love that phrase, particularly in the context of them trying to kill Jesus. 
Isn't it somewhat ironic? You tried to kill and snuff out the heartbeat of the very one who created your heart. How's that going to work for you? Well, they got to see because Jesus came from the tomb three days later and is alive. See, God raised Jesus from the dead. And as you look at this man who now walks and runs and skips and jumps, and you can almost see, as Peter is presenting to the crowd, you can almost see this guy standing next to him like, yeah, that's me. Look, feet, feet. As you look at him, what you need to have running through your head all the time is this. He stands because Jesus lifted him up. Verse 17. Peter continues, and now, brothers, I know. I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he's fulfilled. So repent, turn back that your sins can be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come out from the presence of the Lord, and he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will rise up for you, a prophet like me from your brothers. You'll listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. Then all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. See, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. See, 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 Peter then continues in his message, and I, I'm wondering if he didn't see the faces of the people who he had been preaching to before, where he's like, you know, you know the author of life, you killed him, and you could see the, the faces of some of the people in the crowd almost looking dumbfounded, like, but we, we didn't know. And Peter says, I know, you acted in ignorance, and so did your rulers, but what's interesting is he still calls them to repentance, because ignorance is no excuse. You still need a Savior. You'll still need the Messiah to come. You still need your sins to be covered. So repent. Turn back so your sins can be forgiven. He talks about how Moses, the very first prophet, it's interesting they call Moses the prophet. Moses said, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. And then every prophet after him from Samuel on said the same thing. There is a Messiah coming, there is a Savior coming, there is a Redeemer coming, and you must watch for him. And, and it's fascinating to me that then he flips to this. He says, listen, when you think about your father Abraham, and you consider the covenant that God made with him, you consider the promises that God gave to Abraham. That's a fascinating story, isn't it? I mean, there's Abraham, married, childless, living in Ur. God comes and says, you need to leave this place and go to a place that I'm going to show you. You don't even know where you're going yet, but I'm going to point it out at some point. And in you, I will birth a great nation. And through you, all families of the world will be blessed. And, and you've got to be Abram for a little while. Think, think about the poor guy. Okay, I'm supposed to have this great family. I have no children, not even one. And so he, he, he goes and he begins his journey and he waits years and years and years and years and years and years and years. I can keep going. There's still no baby. So then he tries to take things 
into his own hands. And that goes horribly wrong with consequences that we see even to this day in the Middle East. And God returns and says, I told you, I will give you a son. But, but Lord, but Lord, Lord, I'm old. <laughs> and she ain't young either. How's this going to work? I told you. I'll give you a son. And through him, all families of the world will be blessed. And I think in Abraham's mind, he was really selling it so short that when he had Isaac, that was it. That was it. I have my boy. That's the one. Whatever you do from here is up to you, God, but I have my boy. But in God's plan, it was so much more. Because you know the, the nation of Israel is born from the generations and the generations and the generations and the generations that follow, but even much more than that, and what Peter is preaching here in Acts chapter 3 is this. Not only is it the generational lineage coming from the loins of your father Abraham, but your Savior came, and he's the ultimate fulfillment of that great covenant that God made with your father Abraham. And not only did your Savior come, but Jesus has been so very good to you, and that's what the last verse of chapter three says. He's been so good to you that, that he's come to you first so that you could repent, claim him as your Savior. It's a great message. It's a powerful message. And then verse one of chapter four happens. As they were speaking to the people, <clears throat> The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So, so as they are speaking, as they are preaching the good news to the people who are in front of them, these other people come, and they are not happy. The English language is such a boring language, and we so completely miss the point. If you look at the end of verse 1 of chapter 4, it says the Sadducee, or sorry, it talked about the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. In the Greek, that word came upon them is ephistomai, and it implies that they are coming to somebody with hostile intent. They're coming to them with the intention of harming them, of attacking them. So here come the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. They aren't happy. And there's a couple of reasons why they're not happy, just to kind of throw this at you. I mean, the priests aren't happy because Peter and John are standing there in front of all these people, and they're teaching at the temple. Well, the priests didn't give approval for anybody to be teaching besides them, so they're not happy. Then you've got the, the captain of the temple. They're not happy because they were implicit in the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, and now Peter and John are standing before the people saying that Jesus, who they crucified, he's the Messiah. So now the, the captain of the temple's like, hold on, so we're a part of the mistake. They're not happy. And the Sadducees, they're, they're usually not happy. Um, but, but the, the Sadducees were really not happy because what, what Peter and John are preaching is the resurrection of the dead. They're preaching specifically Jesus, but the Sadducees had a stated point where they disagreed with the resurrection, not just of Jesus, but of anybody. So they're ticked. 
So you've got Peter and John are up there, and they're just preaching and preaching, and then these three groups of people come with this hostile intent, and they arrest them, and they throw them in jail, and they're going to keep them in jail because, eh, it's kind of late, we'll deal with them in the morning. That's not good news. And, and you think, so let me just throw this at you. You think that the moment is gone, right? You think that by this arrest occurring, the moment is gone. The momentum has disappeared. The opportunity of the gospel word being spread is done. And yet, what do we see after their arrest in verse 4? Many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. 5,000. The gospel continues to be effective even if we get thrown in jail because it's God's power and God's word and God's story. So they wake up the next morning in verse 5, and the next day the, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, they gather together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Okay, so just to touch on this. Annas the high priest, he was the high priest a number of years earlier, probably 30, 35 years earlier. He's kind of the patriarch of the family, the high priestly family, okay? So he was the high priest. But then Caiaphas became high priest. He was high priest during the the, the, the trial of Jesus, that was Caiaphas, and then you got John and Alexander, we don't know anything about, they just happen to be in the, the family. So the way to look at it is this, Annas is kind of, he's the godfather of the high priestly family. What he says goes, so there's this, this not so subtle mafia-like influence happening in the high priestly family during trials, during the growth of this new Christian movement, during the crucifixion of Christ and the treatment of his followers, all of these things continue. And so they, they pull Peter and John out of jail. They put them before him. And in verse 7, they say this to him. By what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, Peter loves the opportunity to talk. And they just open the door wide open. So by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, let's stop for a second. Peter doesn't just go off of adrenaline. Peter doesn't just go off of caffeine. <laughs> Peter isn't influenced by the people who are sitting in the room or influenced by the people who are watching him to wait to hear what he's about to say. The influence in Peter's life is the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. The only controlling factor in my life, in my decisions, in my words, is that of the Holy Spirit and him alone. So here Peter responds as a result of the, the influencing factor in his life being the Holy Spirit, and he goes crazy. The end of verse 8. Rulers of the people and the elders. You can hear him ramping up this speech. Rulers of the people and the elders. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, basically, in shorthand, he's like, are we seriously on trial because this guy can walk now? Okay, so, that's all right. That was the Frankism there. 
How does this happen in verse 10? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead, (laughs) by him this man is standing before you well. See, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. So, so what, what, what he does is he just, he, okay, you want me to answer the question? So, so why is this guy standing here? Let me tell you. It's because of the name of Jesus. Does that ring a bell? You killed him. And God brought him back to life. Yeah, Jesus. That's the reason he stands here. Jesus. You remember him? He's the one that you looked at like a, a builder would when he picks up a, a stone that is proposed to be the cornerstone of the construction. And you examined him from every angle like, ah, this is just trash. And you threw it away. And God said, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. That stone that you've rejected, that's the cornerstone. That's the most important stone in the entire building. You put that down and the the cornerstone is the the thing that sets the shape and the dimensions and the the ability for the building to go high. All of that is based on the strength and the shape of that one stone. And he says, listen, the one you rejected, (laughs) yeah, he's the one. He's not just any cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. He is the one that our salvation rests upon. And then this incredibly powerful verse, 12, talking about Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, that's the gospel message in a sentence. There is no other name. I think that's what makes the gospel offensive in our culture today. Not when we say Jesus saves, but when we say only Jesus saves, because it's true. There is salvation in no other. It's only in Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through him. He is the Redeemer, and he is the Savior, and so there is salvation in none other. And Peter just kind of closes the book. He's done. He sets back, arms crossed, huh? And now you get the continued response of the leaders. They saw the boldness, verse 13. Oh, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they, they perceived they were uneducated and common men. They were, they were just astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So I don't know about you, but that, that's okay for my tombstone. Common, uneducated man, but he's been with Jesus. So you get the sense, <laughs> you get the sense that they are ready to either arrest them, punish them, do something to them. But verse 14, they see the man who was healed standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, they, they wanted to do something, but they're there standing next to Peter and John is this fella who now has full use of his feet, grinning like an idiot. Hey guys, I got feet. You want to see what I can do? Look at this. Oh, hey, oh. I mean, you don't know. And this dude's running around going crazy still because still the next day he has not lost the idea that Jesus reached down and picked him up and now he can stand. And so what do they do? 
Verse 15, they had commanded them to leave the council. The guys get together, the boys get together, the leaders get together and conferred with one another. Verse 16, saying this, what are we going to do? There's a notable sign that's been performed through them, and it's, it's obvious to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. Okay, but, but in order that it doesn't spread any further among the people, it's warned them to not speak to anybody else in his name. So they called Peter and John together, and they charged them to not speak or teach at all at the name of Jesus, because that'll fix it. Seriously, Peter, John, no more talking about Jesus. The last thing we want are broken people being made whole. Stop it. Peter and John answered them. This is almost where I landed on this message, but, but I decided not to. Peter and John answered them, so when it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, well, you have to judge that, but, but for us, we can't but speak of what we've seen and heard. We can't keep our mouths shut. That's impossible for us to do. You can command us to stop. There's no way. Do you understand who we've seen? The Savior. Do you understand what he's done for me? He's given me mercy. How do you expect me to sit here with my mouth shut? We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Is that true about you? I mean, it is. It's not a question. It's true about you. I mean, some of you, I can tell you watched the debate this week because I saw your Facebook feed. Or I saw you crying when you walked in this morning. I'm not sure. One of the two. Some of you, some of you um, got to go on hike this week and took some beautiful pictures. And on Facebook, I got to see some of that. So I know, I know, you can't help but speak of what you have seen and what you have heard. Did you have a collision with mercy this week? Did you get to the place this week where you fell on your face and realized, I can't do this, I have screwed it up again. And you got to experience Jesus reaching down with his hand and picking you up so that you can stand again? Is that what you're speaking of? You cannot help but speak of what you have seen and heard. So, so just an aside, go home and check your Facebook timeline and evaluate that yourself. Cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. So what did the leadership do in verse 21? <laughs> They had told them, no more talking. And they're like, sorry, we can't help it. So verse 21, they had further threatened them. They let them go because they couldn't find a way to punish them because of all the people who were praising God for what had happened, which is crazy. As a religious leader, you're like, oh, all these people are praising God. Man. So, so, so they further threatened them. Seriously, I'm telling you, no more. If we hear about a blind man who can see, we're coming after him. No more. We're done with this. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Not that that's really old. <laughs> that's not the point. 40 is kind of young, actually. <laughs> but what he's saying is this was no fluke. This guy's been lame since birth. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a misdiagnosis at some point in his childhood. This is reality. He has not been able to walk for 40 years, and suddenly he can't stop running. So the leadership was clear. We're not going to allow this to continue. We'll let you go this time. But next time, you may not be so lucky. No more. No more healing, 
No more preaching in the name of Jesus. No more. Does that sound a little bit like some of the things you've been afraid of in the recent past? Does it sound like something that you might be afraid of hearing directed at you in the future? I mean, not... I don't mean fear like, oh, you know, the boogeyman fear, but a real potential fear that this could happen where suddenly I hear from the Congress or I hear from the Supreme Court or I hear from the governor or the president that no more. So imagine for a moment you've just been threatened by the authorities for sharing Jesus You're told to never do it again. What are you going to do? Is that when you cry out, Calgon, take me away? No. What you see Peter and John do is precious. In verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They find comfort in their friends. They find comfort in the family of God. They run to the ones who know them best. They do their community group or their connection group or their small group, not because they're like, yeah, I could check it off on Tuesday. I was there. I did the accountability questions. I'm okay. No. No, no, no. This was real life, real stuff. This is exactly reality. This is running into your friends and family because you have no place else to go and you're saying, help. You're not going to believe what just happened. They just said, no more. So their connections with these people were what they counted on to give them courage in those dark times. They counted on those relationships to, to kind of blow the wind into their sails in order to run back out into the darkness. Because, man, this place is dark. So Peter and John, first thing they did was ran to the family. And how, how did their friends, how did their family respond? I mean, how would we respond? I think I've got a couple options here. We could, we could change our strategy. So Peter and John, you're never allowed to go out in public alone. Okay, you two, you're in the penalty box. Let's, let's, let's all sit in the room and hold back until this blows over a little bit. And then, I got an idea, let's attack them on Twitter. It's not a different strategy that's needed. Or, or sometimes I think we might just look at our message and try to alter it. I mean, they're, they're, they're coming against some great opposition. So, hey, 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 Peter, Peter, listen. This whole, you killed Jesus, you need to repent, that ain't going very well. Let's, let's dial it back a little bit. Maybe we should go with a, a God is love message. I bet you'd be more receptive. No, they didn't do that either. So they didn't change their strategy. They didn't change their message. What they did was this, verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Met with great opposition and difficult circumstances, they prayed. They lifted their voices together in a unison of heart, praying together in this time of need, in this time of fear. And and what, what was the content of their prayer? Look at the end of verse 24. This is their prayer. It's beautiful. Sovereign Lord, 
sovereign Lord who, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, said these things, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the people plot in vain? While the kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers they've gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed, against his Messiah. See, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So stop, stop, stop there. They began their prayer by reflecting on who God is. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of how bad they may have needed Calgon at that moment, they reflected on who God is, and it begins with God is sovereign. The idea of sovereignty has fallen on hard times. Let me kind of try to fix that picture for you. It's the the despot. That's an absolute ruler. He says, God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of your care and control. You are responsible. You are in charge. You can be trusted because it's in your control. God, you are sovereign. And in those moments of fear, in those moments of feeling like you're out of control, what else do you need? Not only do you need an understanding that, that God is, 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 is powerful and God is, is in control and, and God has Satan on a leash because he's already championed the victory, you certainly need that. But you also need to know that, that God is huge. God, you created everything we see. God, you made the heaven, the earth, the sea, everything in them. God created everything. God is stronger than all the rulers, all of the leaders, because God has it within his ability to speak things into existence. He said, let there be, and there was. I don't know about you guys. We have that stupid little Comcast remote thing. I push the button of the microphone. I'm like, golf channel, nothing. I can't even get that to work. God goes, Sun, the sun shows up. See, God is powerful. God spoke everything into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo, with his very word, and it became. And God already called his shots. God already did the Babe Ruth thing where he was up to bat and he pointed out there and then hit his home run out that way. That's what the verses quoted out of Psalms are. God already said the Gentiles and the nations are going to rage. He already said the kings are going to stand against Jesus, the Messiah. He got already had that, already worked into his plan, and he did it so perfectly. So in the middle of fear and confusion and concern, these people started their prayer by reflecting on the sovereignty of God, on the power of God, and on the foreknowledge of God. And then they made their request. So, so without cheating... I want you to think in your head for a minute. What would your request be? You've been threatened. Do you think maybe your prayer would sound, Lord, look upon their threats and squash them. Lord, would you look upon their threats, make sure you give us safety, give us that hedge of protection. Lord, look upon them and and shut their mouths so we can continue preaching the word. No, no. Now, their request is found in verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, while signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
See, see, it was amazing is their very request was not to change their circumstances. Their very request wasn't to destroy the leaders and wipe them out. Their request was for more boldness. So what if, what if our response to difficulty was to seek boldness instead of a change in circumstances? What if things went haywire and yet we continue to lean on God to give us the boldness to move forward with the proclamation of the gospel? We, we, we love easy and safe, but God never said we'd have easy and safe. In fact, in fact, John 15 says it very clearly. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're really not going to like you a whole lot either. So difficulty is going to come, guaranteed. Threats are going to be ours. As we continue to run into the darkness and expose the darkness with our calls to repentance in Jesus, there's going to be difficulties. We must be careful to remember that nowhere in God's word does it guarantee religious freedom. As Americans, that's hard to hear. Partly because we've moved God off the throne and put Americanism there. But nowhere in Scripture are we guaranteed religious freedom. You know what's amazing? The Apostle Paul didn't have religious freedom. He was under this guy named Nero. Ever heard of him? And yet still, in his, his writing to the Roman church, he still said, what I want you to do is I want you to pray for your leaders. And I want you to respect their position. And he was talking about Nero. I mean, I'll be honest with you, my prayers for the current election season have been a little bit specific, like, oh, let's just start over. But let's not confuse the right we have as Americans which is the gift of religious freedom with a right that Christians have or that we must have in order for the gospel to continue. I think sometimes we hear the threats of of them cranking down on what it is we're allowed to say in public. We're like, oh, that's it. The churches are going to close. The gospel's never going to move forward. That's not true. Peter and John were arrested. What happened? 5,000 people came to faith. And you know that in the darkest of places, the gospel is going healthier and healthier? The church in North Korea has never been stronger. The church in China has never been bigger. The church in Sudan is exploding, all in the midst of religious persecution. It's funny, these these apostles, they they weren't concerned with persecution. They were concerned with the boldness it would take to speak up. So let me ask you this. Are you more concerned about changing the things around you or the things in you. So what do your prayers sound like? Help me, hide me, shelter me, protect me, watch over me, keep them home, fix this. Or do your prayers sound like those of the disciples? God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. The heart of the prince is in God's hands and he turns it whatever way he chooses. And I, I look to the hills and I'm trying to find my strength. And I keep looking. I keep looking. Where is it? Oh, that's right. My strength doesn't come from the hills. My strength comes from God alone. So in the midst of difficulty, may we seek the boldness 
that God requires of us to accomplish what it is he's called us to, which is the proclamation of the sweet news of the gospel. What could happen if that was, about, that was us? What, what, what could happen if we were busy about proclaiming the word of God boldly regardless of circumstances? Let's pray.